0: Welcome everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for today's Appraisal Buzzcast. I'm Jim Morrison and with us today we have Ed Pinto, Director of the AEI Housing Center. We'll be discussing what appraisers need to understand about the current housing market and the AEI's upcoming 11th Annual Housing Conference, which is a two-day virtual conference, November 30th and December 1st. We'll give you all the information on how to sign up and where to sign up as we get into it. But Ed, thank you so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Jim. Thank you.
0: Well, we have a lot to talk about, so I'll jump right into it. We have your 11th annual housing conference coming up. That's a great accomplishment. You've been doing this for 11 years. I know in the past it was in person. We've now transitioned to the totally virtual. What has that been like? Well, you're right.
1: And hopefully next year, our plan is to do a hybrid. So it'll be both in person and uh, virtual. But what we found was we get about the same amount of participation Either way, but we get a different group because of the geography uh, requirement if it's in person. In terms of the people we're reaching, they're about the same demographic. They just apparently are different uh, location-wise. And so that's why we want to actually move next year to do both because we think we'll pick up even more. We're expecting record attendance. Our RSVPs are ahead of last year's. We ended up with over 500, and we're ahead of that uh, at this point. Uh, with about a week and a half to go. So we're hoping the buzz will get out here and we'll get lots more people signed up.
0: Well, I know I'm really excited for it. I'm signed up for it. We're going to put it on the screen for anybody watching. But for anyone just listening, you go to wwwaiorg events 11th annual housing conference. And this is completely free. So there's no reason for you not to sign up and come check this out. All right. Well, Ed, let's get into talking about some of the topics that we're going to talk about at at the conference. Uh, Just give them a little bit of a teaser. One of the things that I know appraisers have been dealing with is the pipeline has been shut down for a lot of housing because of the crazy spike in interest rates. Can you talk a little bit about how we came about that and, and what that means and maybe what's to happen in the future?
1: Great question, Jim. So as most people know, uh, we had the pandemic, and the Fed's response to that was to really uh, go pedal the metal in terms of what we call uh, spiking the monetary punch bowl. They went with uh, zero interest rate policy for a couple of years. They went with quantitative easing for a couple of years. They built that balance sheet of the Fed up to $9 trillion. It more than doubled from the beginning of the pandemic. And all of this pushed interest rates down. It created uh, mass refinance opportunities, uh, 4 trillion plus origination years, and a very strong purchase market with house price appreciation going gangbusters. Uh, house price appreciation um, in during the pandemic from mid-2020 to the peak in mid-2022, up about 38%. Uh, that wow. had never happened before. And that's a huge increase. We believe house prices peaked in middle of this year, around June or July, and they're now starting nationally, starting to ease off. Some markets are going a lot faster in terms of easing off than others. And pretty much, they tend to fall into two categories that tend to overlap a fair amount. The West Coast is the area that's getting hit the hardest, San Francisco, San Jose, other areas on the West Coast, and areas that have high prices, which also tend to be San Francisco, San Jose, and some other areas out West. There are other areas around the country that are starting to um, move downward. In fact, most areas are moving downward. We'll be updating on all of that, giving the history, giving what's going on today, and making our forecasts about where we think house prices are going nationally. We are just getting ready to come out with our October house price appreciation numbers in the next couple of days. We'll be uh, reporting on those at the conference. Uh, We'll be updating our uh, projection for the end of this year, which is that year-over-year house price appreciation will have slowed from a peak of about 17% in the spring of this year, year year-over-year, to uh, about 6% by December of uh, this year. By necessity means that house prices have actually been declining. On a month over month basis, again, since the peak. And we believe that decline will be about uh, 3%, maybe 4%, somewhere in that range. That's on a month over month basis. And then our projection for next year uh, is by December of next year, house prices will have uh, declined by 10 to 15% in nominal terms. That's going to be a fair amount more given inflation in real terms.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of it is because everybody was moving during the pandemic. Do you think that as we were getting over the pandemic, do you think there'll be a case where people will start moving back to the cities and bring new housing influx back to the cities? Or do you think we've started a new era where we can all work remotely and there's no reason to be in the major cities as much?
1: Well... Another great question. So we follow some research that's done, well-known research in the work-from-home area that others do, and uh, the benchmark is pre-pandemic, and the data go back a year, couple years before the pandemic, I think 2017 or so, and about 5% of the hours that people worked were being worked from home. That went up to 60% during wow. the uh, part of the uh, pandemic shutdowns. And then it's backed off to 30%, which is, rather than looking at the cup being half empty, I tend to look at it being half full. That's six times the level when it was 5%. And it is stabilized around 30%. And it's it's closer to 45% of those who can work from home. So not everyone can work from home. So that 30% includes both people who can and can't. When you eliminate the people who can't work from home, you get to 45%. And that's a very high, high percentage. And we think it's going to stay high and going to trend higher over time. So that's one tailwind that's going to continue. We think that another tailwind that's going to continue, there's been massive migration going on in the United States for decades. Out of California, net migration, over 4 million people, net migration out of California since 1990, over 4 million people out of New York State over the same time period. New York State has half the population of California. So you can see 4 million people on half the population is even more of an impact. Other states around New York, Massachusetts, uh, New Jersey, uh, all the way to the Midwest, Illinois, Michigan, uh, Ohio have also had pretty substantial migration. Where's all that migration going? If it's coming out of California, it's largely going to the western states, up and down uh, Oregon, Washington, all the states, uh, the immediate east of California, all the way to Texas and Colorado. If it's coming out of New York in the northeast and the what you could call the frost belt, it's going to the south and the southwest. It's going to uh, North Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, and it's going to Texas. That's where almost all of it's going. Uh, so you have two different migration patterns going. What they have in common is that the income tax rates, um, not uh, the marginal income tax rates, in all the states that uh, people are leaving California and going elsewhere is much lower in the states they're migrating to, which is no surprise because California has the highest income tax rate in the country, marginal. Likewise, out of the frost belt, it's moving from high on average income tax states to low income tax states, including. Let me finish with Florida, Tennessee, Texas, Nevada, Washington State. I'm missing one, uh, are all zero income tax. I think wow. South Dakota is another one. Zero income tax. So they're going from very high places to these places that have zero uh marginal income tax. And that's that's fueling this. These things are going to continue. So the work from home, this migration. Uh, The arbitrage difference between living in these expensive places, uh, which were made expensive, and we'll get to this in uh, another segment here when we talk about supply, to places that are less expensive, all that's going to continue. And therefore, the migration out of these, it's not so much large cities versus small cities, it's migration out of the Northeast and the Midwest and out of California, which tends to be the larger cities in those places, but it's specifically those states where the migration is really going
0: on. Well, thanks, Ed. We're gonna take a quick break and then we'll get into that next topic that you were talking about. Remote Val is for appraisers. We didn't build Remote Val for appraisals. We built it for appraisers. With a Remote Val, you are in control. Unlike a hybrid valuation, you directly gather the information, photos, and measurements you need while communicating with the homeowner. With no travel time, save gas, and increase the number of inspections you can perform. Combined with 24-hour pay and our exclusive benefits, it's no wonder more appraisers are choosing InCenter Appraisal Management. RemoteVal is fast, easy to use, and completely free for appraisers. To see a demo of RemoteVal in action, visit InCenterAM.com. Welcome back. Thanks so much, Ed. So now we're going to get into housing supply and how some of the current policies are making us a nation of renters. And also, I need your help on a term called light-touch-density And could you explain that to me and what that means for people?
1: Great question again. So let's start with light touch density. That's a a term that we coined in 2019. It basically means going back to the kind of density that we had before uh, the zoning regime that was developed by the federal government. Most people don't know this, but the federal government developed this in 1921 uh, 22 and, and encouraged all of the localities and states across the country to adopt a what became known as a uh, an ex- exclusionary zoning structure, which means you create zones and you exclude everything else, but what you define as being eligible in that zone, everything else is excluded. That led to zones across most of the country that were restricted solely to single family detached. That was quite unusual back when that was done in 1921. If you go to any neighborhood that was built in the teens or the twenties in this country, you'll find a mixture of single-family and duplex and small apartment buildings. Some commercial, you'll find a mixture of offices, some small offices, doctors' offices, uh, dentist offices. You'll find those all mixed together. That was the norm, but there was a desire back in the early twenties because there was there was an effort to Zone based on race uh, and keep blacks out of uh, areas by law. And the Supreme Court in 1916 said, can't do that. It's a violation of equal protection under the 14th Amendment. So they came up with an economic way of doing it. And this is going to sound crazy today, but they basically said, look, if we can make housing that and restrict it to single family detached, we can make that housing so expensive that. Blacks can't afford it. And they were also trying to get Southern Europeans and Eastern Europeans in the same uh, boat uh, to not be able to afford it. They said if they can't afford it, then we effectively can keep them out. And that was the design. So they basically went to very low density compared to what had been the case. They went to setbacks and side yards and front yards and, and square footages and all these different things that made it just more expensive now, the housing compared to today was still relatively inexpensive, but it was beyond the reach of the people that they intended to keep out. And that lasted for a long time till today. So light touch density basis, let's go back to where it was and get rid of the exclusion and go back to these light types of density that can be introduced. They're residential. They're, if you go to this, uh, the federal definition of a mortgage, as uh, it's called mortgage single family one to four. So the federal government recognizes one to four, but zoning basically says one only. And so that's what light touch density is. Uh, As a result of those zoning restrictions and what became known as not in my backyard, we ended up really restricting the ability to not only build a sufficient number of units to meet demand, but also made it very expensive. We made land very expensive. And the appraisal uh, profession knows this. Land has gone up tremendously the the rule of thumb is that land should be about 20 when you're developing new it should be about 20% of the cost of the, the sales price of that the total sales price of the house 80% should be for the structure when you have a developed area that has some amenities that are attractive that percentage might go up some to 30% or 40% but it shouldn't be like in California where you buy a 1950s style rambler that was the entry level home in 1955 at 12 or 1300 square feet, that house today costs $1.3 million in San Jose. It's still the same 12 or 1300 square foot house built in 1950s. Uh, It's still the same starter house, except it now costs 1.3 million. Why? Because the land is worth 1.1 million and the structure charitably may be worth 200,000, the residual land, the residual structure value. And that's the problem. And the way I describe it is, it's as if you decided the only kind of automobiles you're going to build are Ferraris. And if you only build Ferraris that sell for $100,000, two things happen. One is you don't sell that many Ferraris, not that many people can afford to buy one. And secondly, the price of all used cars goes skyward. And well, that's what's happened across the country. And again, San Jose is the perfect example. They build very little new housing. The median new price, new house costs two and a half million dollars. So they don't sell, there aren't very many people who can afford those. And the median price of the existing home is 1.3 million. That, That is the Ferrari example. We need to change that and get back to what normally happens in a market that's called a filtering market. A filtering market is where you're building more supply. And that supply is at the midpoint of the existing stock. Think of the automobile industry. You're building more towards the midpoint. And that then frees up all kinds of used cars and used homes, taking the analogy, that are then made available and rentals that are made available because people are moving out of those lower priced areas and into this middle part of the market. And that is adding lots more supply there. And you're able to have this filtering going on we shut all that down and and when we threw out light touch density
0: so do you think that you know these policies that are making us a nation of renters how can they get out of that and is it just we need more supply or or how we, how do we fix this we, situation we
1: need more supply it needs to be in the middle and we'll be going over at the conference uh, we we've done a lot of uh, what we call natural experiments looking at how markets actually work we have a new one that we'll be releasing about seattle And Seattle actually converted a chunk of the city that was zoned, single-family, converted to what was called low-rise multifamily. Well, remember, the definition of multifamily in zoning is more than one unit.
0: So
1: two units is a low-rise multifamily. Three units is a low-rise multifamily. Four units the same. So this freed up areas that could be built with two, three, and four units, basically light-touch density. And they got an explosion of units in those areas. And when you look at the single family areas that were still restricted to one unit, they got virtually no new additions, number one. Number two, the price of this low-rise multifamily, again, two, three, and four-unit structures, was at the midpoint of the price of what was selling in Seattle. So again, it met that middle spot. uh, And you got a lot of filtering opportunity. Whereas what do you get, and appraisers, again, know this, what do you get when you restrict an area to only single family detached is the only legal use? Because when you value a parcel, it's valued at its highest and best legal use. And if right. it's restricted to one unit, that's the legal use you get a McMansion. And so we can show that what you get, if you don't allow this light touch sensor, you get a two and a half million dollar McMansion, which, again, very few people can afford, and you're just replacing one unit with one unit. You've actually moved backwards. You've taken a million-dollar house off the market, which is what the unrenovated one was that you tore down, and you've replaced it with a $2.5 million house. Why? You can't put the same house you tore down that was 1,200 square feet. You can't put that on a million-dollar lot. No appraiser would say that's not the highest and best use as a single family for that lot. The highest and best use for that lot is to build a million and a half dollars of improvements on a million dollar lot, which gets you back to a 40 percent land share. It all this is all coming back to appraisal valuation theory and why the land value is, is so important. So, we'll be talking about Seattle. The bad news is we actually have full circle in Seattle two or three years ago. Seattle decided that, oh, they were going to change this structure, and they then put income limits on building this light-touch density, these two and three, four units. Or you could pay a very large fee to opt out. The volume of new construction with light-touch density plummeted. And so they went from getting 18,000 units over 20 years to now getting virtually none. And so they basically killed the goose that was laying the golden supply eggs. So we're going to use this as a complete round trip to say, here's what you should do positively, and here's what you should avoid. The the light touch density when we introduced it in 2019, uh, it actually got uh, picked up in California, of all places, as a light touch density bill in March of 2020. It event that bill eventually was passed along with another bill that also allows uh, duplexes and California has now enacted two light-touch-density bills that took effect in uh, January of this year, and we'll
0: also be talking about that. Well, we are excited for that. We're going to take one more commercial break, and then we're going to get into our final session. Whether you're looking for an authoritative textbook or detailed information on current valuation issues and specific property types, you'll find what you need at the Appraisal Institute store. To choose from more than 70 print and digital publications, shop at appraisalinstitute.org. Thanks so much for welcome back, everyone. Ed, so let's talk about the final session. That and you have more than session of this. You're covering two days, but we're just covering three topics here. Let's talk a little bit about some of the systemic racism and systemic disadvantage that you guys have studied in the housing market.
1: Great. So, uh, as many many of you know, we've been uh, doing this work for a number of years. uh, Started about two and a half years ago, and we've published many different studies. We'll be going through. Uh, those studies quickly. Just uh, uh, reiterating the work that we've done and and how it's built. The uh, one is built on the last, et cetera. But we will be talking mostly about a new study that we're getting ready to release just prior to uh, the conference, and that is a blueprint for mass screening appraisers for racial bias and inaccuracy based on an Atlanta, Georgia study that we conducted. So we actually got actual appraiser data on appraisals and were able to analyze those appraisals by appraiser for Atlanta and look for racial bias and look for two types of inaccuracies, just what we would just call general inaccuracies. They could be high, they could be low. They just were inaccurate. You could call that incompetent, but they were just inaccurate. Or sloppy. So is there some
0: incompetence that is being mixed in with this data that's being confused yeah. for racial bias?
1: Yeah. And so when we look for racial bias, we're look we're comparing white borrowers with black borrowers and, and looking for that. When we're looking at the inaccuracy, either incompetence or coming up with the answer, what's colloquially known as made as instructed, we're only looking in white areas uh with white borrowers. And uh, in order to even just eliminate the racial issue. And what we found when we moved on to the inaccuracy part, um, not the racial bias part, but the inaccuracy part, limited just to uh, uh, white areas with uh, that had white borrowers, we found that there could be instances where an appraiser was wrong in both directions. We would we'll just call that sloppy or whatever, incompetent. But we also found we actually didn't find any of those. They you know we were looking for those. but we, what we did find was the cases where an appraiser was consistently coming in high. And well, that leads us to you know not every case, but enough that it was statistically significant that they were coming in high. and we we think that is and these these are refinance appraisals that we're looking at. And so we think this these are potential cases of of the appraiser knowing what the answer needs to be to meet an LTV ratio in order to let the refi go by, uh, to go through, or a cash-out requirement in order, LTV requirement again, to let the refi happen, that they're basically uh, getting to the answer through what these uh, requirements are. What we've now developed is this blueprint for this math screening, and we outline how Fannie, Freddie, and and or FHA can do this. They, the data are all available We don't have access to all the data. We had access to a a small chunk of data, but based on that small chunk, we were able to develop this methodology and prove that it works. We outlined how it could be uh, ramped up for the entire country, and we also outlined that you don't stop at this point. You're now screening for these types of, of problems, but once you find them, you then do desk reviews, Of those by appraisers doing desk reviews. And you actually determine yes, they're actually beyond the statistical likelihood, there actually is a problem here when you get into the actual appraisal. And at that point, once you establish that that's present, you now have a basis for either uh, saying this appraiser is going to be brought up before whatever regulatory body for racial bias or for just inaccuracies due to sloppiness or due to consistently coming in high or made as instructed. And we think that is the way to go here rather than the kinds of things where we actually mentioned this in a footnote, where you do the testers and going out and asking for appraisal A and appraisal B on the same property. That's very time consuming and very expensive. And you're still left with which one's right. We right. think you have to have Go through a statistical screening process on a mass basis that enables you to do this. The key is that there are X number of appraisers, and there were millions and millions and millions of appraisals that were done over the last five or six years by a relatively small number of appraisers, whatever the number is 35, 40,000. You end up with each appraiser on average having, if you have the whole data set, which Fannie and Freddie and FHFA do you end up with a lot of appraisals per appraiser and you know what the race of the borrower is. And therefore, you can do both the racial analysis for bias and you can do the inaccuracy analysis as we described it.
0: Well, Ed, this is really interesting. We so appreciate this introduction and sneak peek into it. We can't wait for it. So this will be published a week before the conference. So once again, anybody that wants to hear more of this, go to www.aei.org slash events slash 11th Annual Housing Conference, and you can register for free and join. Ed, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. Bye now. All right. And thanks to our sponsors for for helping us put this on. And thanks to our listeners for joining us. If you have any comments or would like to be included in a future Buzzcast, reach out to us at comments at appraisalbuzz.com. Thanks and have a great day.